0: Welcome to Everyday Wellness. Wellness is the result of the decisions that you make every day. It's your mindset and the thoughts you believe. Wellness is the food you put in your body and the relationship you have with yourself and others. Wellness is your work and meaning. Join us on Everyday Wellness as we explore ways that you can choose wellness today.
1: Hey, hey, good morning. We've got Dr. Tro, who's a board-certified internal medicine and obesity medicine physician. His therapeutic focus includes diabetes, obesity, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, metabolic syndrome, and PCOS, many of the things that we see in our clinical practices. And his approach begins with intensive lifestyle changes, including diet exercise, improve sleep hygiene, as well as stress management and mental health. Dr. Tro is a thriving medical weight loss and primary care clinic in New York State. Welcome Dr. Tro.
2: Thank you for having me very happy to be here.
1: We are so excited to have you here. And like many
0: professionals who get into this field, they often do it for reasons that because they've lived through something or experienced something. So I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your background and your own weight journey.
2: Uh, uh, I'll I'll try to give you the short story Um, yeah uh, so so I at at a young age I knew I wanted to go into medicine I knew I wanted to uh, help people my my family you know if you if you saw my family pictures basically you're looking at obesity and diabetes Uh, my mother was obese my brother was 450 pounds my younger brother was 450 pounds my father was overweight and had hypertension Uh, I was obese Uh, at a young age and but I saw all this suffering around me aunts uncles with early heart attacks and I just knew that medicine was my calling I remember being you know 14 or 15 and knowing I I have to change this I have to do something about it and yeah I I went into medicine you know went through college uh, went through med school went through residency gaining 10 pounds a year pretty consistently and, you know, got married, three kids, and here I am, you know, a, a board-certified internist at 350 pounds. And, uh, you know, my, my, it's funny, I would counsel patients. Patients would come to me and I'd tell them, yep, you gotta lose weight, you got diabetes, we gotta talk about diet, we'll go see the nutritionist. And I, you know, it was not surprising to me. It was kind of like obvious to me that they would come back and would need medications and that was the way I practiced medicine, uh, and that was the way I was taught medicine. I really wasn't taught to do anything more than that. Finally, it came to a tipping point where my wife really challenged me to lose weight, and she said, you're a smart doctor. You scored on the 90th percentile in your board exam. You know, had just diagnosed her father with this aortic, uh, with a aortic, you know, a problem with the heart, essentially. Uh, uh, while other doctors had missed it. And she said, you're a smart guy. Why can't you figure this out? Why can't you figure out why you're overweight, why people are overweight? So she really challenged me in a a safe way. So I went to the medical textbooks and I went to the uh, nutrition literature. You know, I was always an evidence-based proponent. So of course I went to the evidence. And it's funny, when you look at the evidence, it clearly says low carb does slightly better. So I started uh, with a low carb diet, and uh, the pounds came off. And then you look further into the literature, and you see intermittent fasting is is uh, you know very synergistic with low carb dieting. And then I added that, and the pounds came off even quicker. And then my sleep apnea is <laughs> gone, my hypertension's gone, my mood is you know stable, my my focus is. Greater. And it's like, what's going on here? And finally, I lost 150 pounds. Um, and uh, just to, to, to make a final culmination of kind of the journey, you know, not only did I lose 150 pounds doing low-carbon intermittent fasting, I, you know, have a panel of patients and I wanted to show them they didn't need – to, you know, they were coming to me and saying, well, what about all, you know, exercise? Can I exercise and not have any carbs? Can I exercise fasted? So I trained and ran a 5K, you know, completely fasted for 24 hours, having not had carb, carbs for pretty much six to nine months, any, like any even reasonable amount of carbs, let's say under 15 to 20 grams a day. So, and I ran the town 5k and I came in first place for my age group and I came in seventh uh, place overall. You know, and the people in front of me were like these little pipsqueaks who are, (laughs) you know, uh, you know, 100 and nothing pounds who run cross country. (laughs) And here I am, I'm a 195 pound, you know, 5'11", couch to 5k, completely fasted, zero carbs, you know, coming first place for my age group, so that's my journey. And you know, you can't. All in the while, my practice has changed, and the way I, I, you know, handle medicine and view medicine has changed because I know firsthand how powerful weight loss is.
1: Yeah, well, and it's and it's interesting because my whole background as an NMP is in cardiology, and oftentimes uh, people will say, you know, what made your transition from being an NP, practicing clinically, and then, you know, the spin-off into being an entrepreneur. And I always said, you know, I got to a point where many patients were younger than me, and I was writing prescriptions for diabetes medications and statins and antihypertensives. And I kept saying to my colleagues, there's got to be a better way. Like, we just don't have the ability to enact um, significant changes. And if we, if they go home and they still eat the same way and they don't move their bodies and you know, they're not getting enough sleep and, and not taking care of themselves. What are we really doing in essence? I feel like we're putting a bandaid on everything. So I completely, um, applaud you for the hard work that you did. It's much harder to change the way you eat than it is to take medication, as we both know. So I, you know, really identify with that journey. I I think that you serve as such a consummate example to your patients and to so many in the medical community that, you know, we can do things a different way. I mean, food really is profoundly powerful, but I would love for you to talk a little bit about, you have this philosophy to... That you believe that in order to really connect with your patients um and not to approach our treatment and and your relationship with them as one from an ivory tower which any of my students if they're listening to this podcast they know that's what i always say the ivory tower because that's what we were taught in um you know our training at a big medical institution on the east coast how does this affect their treatment you know seeing you as um more as an equal in terms of you're in a partnership together to work through Um, changing these you know lifestyle choices that they've been making to enact significant and profound change in their lives
2: I think that um, one of the difficult things as a physician is you know you and somebody who's always been a proponent myself I've always been a proponent of evidence-based medicine right Um, to go off and a little bit into the fringe, and even though the head-to-head studies in the medical literature support low-carb use for weight loss and for diabetes, and it's literally better than any other approach in the medical literature, the AHA doesn't recommend it, and the observational studies, meaning like when these ivory tower scientists are looking at 200,000 people and asking them what foods they eat and seeing what happens you know, uh, uh, three years later or five years later or 10 years later when they send them another survey and ask them what foods they eat. You know, these observational and population-based data is slightly against you know, very tiny, tiny uh, increased risk when you eat meat or when you eat dairy You know, and and that's the kind of basis we've been taught off. The AHA has been saying that fat is evil for the last 50 years. These population studies, you know, uh, of course they would show that uh, meat is slightly less favorable in the literature because what have they been telling people for the last 50 years based off of flawed science? They've been telling them not to eat meat. So the only people left eating meat are the people who probably don't listen to their doctors. So, of course, they're... uh, going to be less healthy. In fact, when you look at these ivory tower studies, you know, these population studies, and you control for people who only shop at health food stores, so you're not just comparing people who eat meat and don't eat meat, you're looking at people who eat meat and don't eat meat, who only shop at health food stores, or who only take a vitamin. That effect of meat goes away, and it becomes almost inconsequential. So I think the problem is is that nutrition has been guided by these people who've never experienced obesity, they don't know what obesity feels like, and they're looking at data from 20,000 feet that makes no sense when you're dealing with somebody who's in your clinic and says, I'm hungry, I can't stop thinking about cereal and you know the next chocolate bar I'm gonna eat. Uh, it really doesn't matter what the meat shows in these population studies, when you have a person in front of you who's telling you they're always hungry,
0: I think that's so important to distinguish. And, you know, I've also read that you've said that you've never met a patient who wanted to be obese. And then I imagine by the time that they come to see you, they've tried many, many, many different approaches, different diets, different programs. But I'm curious from your perspective, how that stigma and shame that so many people who are overweight and obese feel how that impacts their willingness to get to treatment and then to engage in treatment
2: yeah the the look i was disenfranchised i mean i'm just going to talk about myself i was 30 years old i was you know morbidly obese i was always tired my joints hurt and every single you know expert at Yale, in the Yale system, had told me to eat less and move more. I've had top endocrinologists, top cardiologists, you know, uh, excellent mentors of mine over the years in medicine, people that I consider to be brilliant minds, basically said to me, well, why can't you just eat less? Why can't you just go exercise? And I have pictures of me, you know, 350 pounds with dumbbells exercising. Um, So the problem is, is that the advice has been really terrible. It's been cut your calories and burn more calories. And that's the wrong advice. You need to control appetite. You can, yes, you can cut calories using like executive function, using your willpower. But the minute life happens, the minute you're sleepless because you have toddlers at home, the minute your job becomes stressful, you know, that willpower will fade. And so willpower is a finite resource. And so relying on willpower and using only that to cut calories is a sure way to not succeed. And so really I think what I try to get people to do is realize that appetite control comes before calorie control. If you control appetite, the calories will control themselves. You know, And if you control appetite and control hours, the calories will definitely control themselves. And so a lot of what I tell people is, look, it's not your fault, we've been giving you crap advice for the last 50 years, it, this isn't, has nothing to do with you, you, know, you, don't wanna, you, know, you wouldn't be eating if you weren't hungry. I mean, yes, there are some people who have kind of very specific, unique cases, but most people won't eat if they're not hungry. And so if you teach them how to be not hungry, then it's easy for them to lose weight. And that's exactly what I did, I taught myself to be not hungry. And I eat until I'm completely full. I'm stuffed in the face. I can't even eat anymore. And yet the pounds come off. It's funny. I'm not advocating Wendy's here. But, for the, you know, a lot of times, let's say I couldn't cook a real meal at home. And, you know, there's a Wendy's nearby my office. You know, I used to pull in with my car. And I would pull into the drive through window. And I'd order, you know, five hamburger patties with some salt. And that's what I'd eat. That'd be my go-to meal if I was like in a jam, let's say like once every three months or so.
1: Do you find yourself struggling to get a good night's sleep? If so, you may be dealing with a hidden mineral deficiency. It is not at all uncommon in perimenopause and menopause to deal with sleep in the right doses, all in a highly absorbable liquid form. All you do is take a shot of bean minerals about an hour before bed. Don't worry, it tastes like water and you'll replenish all of your body's minerals in about 30 seconds and give your brain what it needs for deep restorative sleep. I've been using this product over the last several months. I've really been impressed with the improvement in my sleep metrics, which I like to share on social media with my followers. And if you want a simple way to improve your sleep, head over to www.bminerals.com and use code CYNTHIA for 20% off your first order. That's www.bminerals.com and use code CYNTHIA for 20% off your first order. Today's podcast is sponsored by NutriSense. It combines cutting-edge technology and human expertise, so you can see how your body responds to different types of nutrition, stress, 12-month subscriptions where it's actually less expensive and allows you to not only achieve your goals, but also to ensure that you stick to your healthy lifestyle for the long term. As I've mentioned before, I found the CGMs I've used through Nutrisense to be incredibly insightful, specifically to WP for $30 off plus one month of free nutritionist support. Be sure to let them know you're a listener of the Everyday Wellness Podcast when they ask you how you heard about them. This is one of my favorite ways to take care of my health and one of my top recommendations for all of my patients and clients.
2: Anyway, recently, you know, normally I cook for myself at home, steak, chicken, eggs, fish, you know, um... But I was in a similar situation where I couldn't get a meal, and I pulled up. I, you know, went actually into the uh, Wendy's uh, that's nearby my office, and I ordered five hamburger patties with salt. And the guy, the teller, looks at me. goes, "Yeah, there was a guy that used to come into the drive-through window, and always order that." And I turned to him and said, "That was me. You know, don't you remember me?" He goes, "How are you so skinny?" <laughs> you know, he looks at me and says, "How are you so skinny?" So yeah, I think you have to just convince people that what they've been told is completely wrong. And you need to try something else.
1: Well, and I think, you know, dispelling the outdated dogma is really critical and crucial. I think, you know, one thing that um, I feel like is a consistent discussion that I'm having on a daily basis is, is, you know, what we used to tell people about fat, that fats are bad, and fat is what contributes to vascular disease. And that's what makes people heavy. And, then trying to flip it around and explaining that, you know, it's sugar and carbs that are contributing to these issues uh, and that healthy fats are really critical and crucial. Now, you know, I wanna flip the switch a little bit and talk a little bit more about statistics. And so we know from, um, you know, current CDC, Uh, reports that approximately 40% of the United States population is classified as obese. And this number has been steadily growing, uh, certainly expeditiously, seemingly over the last 20 years. But I'd love for you to discuss what you feel the factors um, that are contributing to the obesity epidemic presently.
2: Yeah, I I just gave a grand rounds at VCU about this topic, uh, trying to inspire medical students and residents and attendings to rethink about this problem. Um, because 40% are obese, right? But 20% of kids are obese, right? So they're born into obesity and there's a, a alarming rate of liver disease in children, right? There's an alarming rate of diabetes in children. You said it yourself, you're giving, you know, patients a quarter of your age or half your age statins and, and metformin. So something's wrong here and it's not about Uh, uh, it's not about uh, willpower deficiency, we're being born into this. And so you have to look at this from a societal perspective, what is causing this? What is driving 40% of the United States to become obese and another 20% to 30% to become uh, overweight? And what's driving the 70% that are either pre-diabetic or diabetic? So there's something that's very powerful and insidious that's driving this. And the problem is is the ivory tower folks that you're talking about, that you tell your students, they're saying, oh, maybe it's the TV. Maybe it's the advertisements. Maybe it's the fact that we have heating and AC. And they're so confused. They're trying to find these associations and trying to figure it out. Maybe it's the meat. Maybe it's the eggs. Eggs are good. Eggs are bad. Eggs are good again. They don't know. They have no idea. And the problem is is that they have no idea and they've been confusing people for the last 50 years. Well. Let's figure out what we do in my clinic. In my clinic we remove crap food, we remove garbage. You know that isogenic shake you were on? You're gonna stop that, it's full of sugar. <laughs> you know, the, uh, the you know, junk food that you're eating? I, I don't care if you want fast food, let's figure out what you're gonna eat when you have fast food, okay? I don't care that you, you know, it's like, let, I understand you're busy, I understand life's hard, okay? So let's make it work to suit your health goals right? The Cheetos, are they serving your health goals, right? Why is it that two hours after you have three slices of pizza, you're hungry again? Why is it that three hours after you go and have that fast food, the cheeseburger with the bun and the ketchup and the, you know, the fries and the milkshake that you're hungry three hours later, right? So why do these things happen, right? So I try to get patients to just ask why. I think the the answers are very clear of why. We're obese. It's because these foods are causing us to be more hungry. They're designed to make you more hungry. Okay, the 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 Nabisco, the the uh, Kraft, you know, the Entenmanns and the Pepperidge Farm, they are. They have teams of scientists. They have 40 food engineers. Okay, they have 40 food scientists, two doctors on their payroll, devising these foods in a way, making them in a way. Not only are you going to love the taste. But they want you to be hungry two hours later and three hours later hormonally so that you go and become a recurring customer. All right? They can make food really satiating. Those food companies, Hellman's, could be making uh, mayonnaise with just avocado oil, but even their avocado oil mayonnaise is mostly soybean oil, and we know soybean oil con- contributes to insulin resistance, messes with your hormones, right? and makes you more hungry. There's a reason why there's soybean oil is being used in McDonald's and Wendy's, right? They know that these crap oils will literally not fill you up like an omega-3, like an olive oil or an avocado oil, right? They know that it's not going to be the same satiation you're going to get when you have beef or fish and eggs, right? So they're using these really terrible oils and they're packing it with sugar and carbs to get you more addicted, right?
1: By any chance, have you read the book uh, Salt, Sugar, Fat?
2: Yeah, Michael Moss. It's a, It's he's, he's right on the money. Yeah, know? uh, he knows what he's talking about. And and M- Michael Moss's book, Salt, Sugar, and Fat. It, it. I I like to focus. I the theme I like there is that look, these companies have an agenda and it's to make more money. They're not. They don't care about your health. Mm-hmm. So don't think it's your willpower failure when you walk into that supermarket and you want that entamins and you want the chips and you go and take those chips home and you eat them and you eat the whole bag. It's not a moral failure that you're doing what's exactly what your body's your body is doing what it's meant to do. Okay? You it's meant to release a whole bunch of insulin. It's meant to, you know, plummet your blood sugar after you have all those carbs and you're meant to be more hungry because Mm -hmm. of those shifts in glycemia. Right? So your body's meant to do what it's doing. Now the question is, what are the inputs you're giving it? You won't feel that way if you have a pound and a half of steak, but you will feel that way if you go have you know Chinese food or pizza or fast food. right? So I think the problem is this, is that we have been told you know to uh, eat less and move more, and it's not working. We have mm-hmm. to be told to eat in a way that satiates us and fills us so that we can easily deflect those junk foods like it's nothing.
1: Yeah, well, almost like your Teflon. I I think that um, that book in particular, I always say I have a, a group of like five books that changed my whole perspective on nutrition. And so that one, when I read it, just made me angry, realizing that there are these food scientists that are in labs to create the most blissful experience, make it as sugary as possible, add enough fat so that it's so enticing. And then you know consumers are literally sitting ducks for the fact that, they could have all the willpower in the in the world, but you can't just eat one Cheeto. You can't just eat one Dorito. You know, you're just kind of driven to continue eating those junk foods. So I'm grateful that you're having those discussions because they are important to be having with our patients um, and wishing and hoping that there are more, more of us that will continue to grow and, and share this great information.
0: And it must be relieving for your patients, too, because from my work with my patients, when they feel like it's their personal failure, it's them. They're the ones who don't have the willpower. They're the ones who can't say no to that second can of pringles or whatever it is that that just drives them further down that negative spiral and then oftentimes they eat in response to that so they're eating in response to these chemicals and then they're also eating in response to feeling terrible and shameful about themselves too
2: i i think that's the big issue right there is the people will come right you're you have to convince them look your body is doing what it's meant to do. When you are under stress, if the Paleolithic you was being chased by a bear and you narrowly escaped and you, you know just made it and your adrenaline's pumping and you come across a field and there's a gazelle and you hunted it and you killed it and there's a field of honey and you, sit, you, sit, you spotted honey and you, fought, you spotted berries, of course you want that stress to drive you to eat. So stress-induced hyperphagia, basically stress driving you to eat, is a natural, I think, and, and I think our, I, I think it's intentional, right? I think that's how our design is. So that's your design, all right. You're designed to eat when you're stressed. So what do you do? What do you do about it? Okay. Of course, you know, if it was Paleolithic you, 10,000 years ago, and you narrowly escaped that, you know, bear that you ran away from, you'd want to be hungry. You'd want to eat that gazelle. You'd want to eat the berries on top of it, and you'd want to be insulin resistant at that time during that acute stress so you store that energy as fat you'd want that to happen and it would be a survival advantage. So what makes that not a survival advantage? What would, what would make that deleterious? You know people ask me about uh, um, gestational diabetes well let's go back to Paleolithic times 10,000 years ago right and let's say you had gestational diabetes well all of a sudden gestational diabetes is a superpower because your offspring is getting a higher blood sugar with less resources, with less food intake, right? So, so gestational diabetes may in fact have been a survival advantage, but what has taken control of these things now to make them unhealthy for us? And it's the food, right? It's not the design, it's the food, right? Because if you're eating, you know, french fries and a burger with ketchup and bread and a milkshake right after, your insulin's gonna go through the roof. And then an hour later, when your, when your uh, blood glucose starts coming down, you're gonna be hungry again. Two hours later, you're gonna be hungry again. And you're gonna be driven to eat. And if you give it more foods that are stimulating that insulin and driving your glycemia on a roller coaster, you're just gonna be more hungry. So it's not that you have stress-induced hyperphagia, you have, does the stress cause you to eat more? That is by design, okay? And it, it is normal. It is not abnormal, I think it's normal right? So you need to realize. So what I tell my patients is exactly that. You are doing what you're designed to do. You are not abnormal. Now the question is, is how do you, what inputs do you give your body? If you give it steak, eggs, chicken, fish, right? Or if you give it some time, let's say you're fasting, you drink water, you drink coffee, you drink tea, you give some time for your body to really assess if that hunger is real, right? So if you you give it the right inputs, you're going to get a good outcome right? If you have a pound of steak, even if you're stress-induced and you have a pound of steak, you're gonna win when that 12 hours later when you're full off that pound of steak. So I try to tell people it's not about you. you. You know these foods that there are on the supermarket shelves that the nutritionists say you should have in moderation and that you know all these companies want you to eat, you know, you're designed to eat it and overeat it. So don't expect that you're unique. 70% of us have this problem. 70% of us are either overweight or obese. It's not a, you should not feel shameful. You, you should not feel that. It's normal. It's normal, you know, even animals, even raccoons when they're fed, you know, they, they did a study, I, I don't wanna to take too long, but uh, they, just a quick thing, they did a study on raccoons in cities, in suburbs, and in uh, kind of the rural areas. And they found that raccoons in the cities have diabetes and obesity and raccoons in the suburbs have a little bit less, diabetes, you know, diabetes. And out in the country, they don't have any. And why is it that these raccoons and rats have diabetes and have obesity? Well, they have access to our crap food, right? They have access to our crap food, and they have access to our garbage. All the cupcakes and the, you know, and the bread that you're throwing out, that's what they're eating, right? So other animals, they experience the same thing we do right? So you are not unique. It is not a unique problem for you. It's not a character flaw. Sorry if I rambled on guys. No,
0: I think it's so important for people to hear that message because that is, that is not a message that we hear very often. And so, you know, you've talked a lot about not eating these processed foods that fuel these responses and a little bit about the impact of fasting and hormones but your approach also has a really big lifestyle component to include things like sleep and stress which Cynthia and I just love hearing about so can you tell us why your approach contains those components as well
2: Yeah I mean very clearly sleep deprivation sleep quality will drive Uh, hunger, right? It'll make you more hungry. It'll make you more insulin resistant. It'll make you store that as fat. And I think that, again, I think it's by design. Uh, It makes anthropologic and kind of uh, uh, physiologic sense why we would have that, right? If you were stressed out after a three-day hunt, you know, 5,000, 10,000 years ago, of course you'd want to be more hungry and store that food Uh, And store whatever you eat as as fat, right? So you want that insulin resistance when you're sleep deprived. So the problem becomes uh, in our modern world, we have constant access to crap foods that even that worsen this hyperinsulinemia, that worsen this insulin problem, that worsen the glycemia problem, and always keep you hungry. Um, So yeah, absolutely, sleep deprivation. You know, it's associated with um, with Insulin resistance and it's associated with weight gain and increased hunger, so it has to be addressed. I think it's it's one of the last things that I'll address. Uh, food composition is much more important. Food uh, timing is a is a big important topic. Uh, and stress, again, we mentioned this. It drives you to eat. So making my, my patients aware of that and making sure people are aware of that is very key. How do you manage that stress? You know, how do you get yourself? How do you create an environment? that supports your health goals. You know, how do you involve your family to support your health goals? So when you're under stress that, you know, it's not always just on you, you know, how do you cultivate a community? How do you, um, you know, and so th- these are things we talk about with our patients.
1: Well, one of the things that I know you are a huge advocate of is intermittent fasting. And as everyone knows, it's it's something that Kelly and I embrace as well. Um, you. Although you indicate that you prefer that your patients eat early and stopping early, ideally. Um, can you share with us why that is the preferred timing for intermittent fasting from your perspective? At some point, we've all been sold a big slash Cynthia. That's B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com slash Cynthia and use promo code Cynthia10 for 10% off of any order. Again, that's promo code Cynthia10 for 10% off any order. Ignites Metabolism
2: if you look at the data right, that we have, which is not uh, which is not a lot, but Sashin Panda, uh, the author of The Circadian Code, and he's done a lot of uh, uh, studies on intermittent fasting, uh, which I know you guys both support, and uh, you had an awesome TED Talk, by the way, which I really loved. Thank you. Uh, everybody should watch that, I think. So one of the things that he found was early time-restricted feeding had slightly improved outcomes versus late time-restricted feeding and when we're looking at our cgm data we find that our late eaters have persistently high blood sugars the entire next day Um, so we're seeing these patterns of worse glycemia blood sugars being worse the entire next day with late night eating now so so if i could control all variables i would ideally eat early and stop early Right, but let's say 10% of my practice actually does that. 90% of my practice eats late and stops late, and I'll tell you why that's fine and why I'm why I'm happy about that, because I think any time restricted uh, eating and any intermittent fasting is better than none. And the reality is, is we have lives. We go to work, and it's kind of easy to skip breakfast and push lunch. And we all come home to our families, and we want to eat and Uh, together you know you don't want to be sitting at a dinner table having your kids ask you why you're not eating mom or dad and so I think that the reality of our lives you know you have to individualize it and clearly our society uh, is structured in a way and our day's timing is structured in a way that eating late and stopping late works for more people but in an ideal world based on the data we have and the based on the data that I'm seeing with our CGMs our continuous glucose monitors you know late night eating is not ideal you know i'll push the early eating on some of my diabetics and the early stopping on like the very very brittle diabetics Mm. to see if it has a a impact maybe i would want to say 10 to 20 points we'll see on on a cgm nothing stellar but there is some appreciable change
1: really interesting. And it makes sense. I mean, I I typically when uh, individuals reach out, and they want to know what my feeding window is, I always remind them, I'm like, I don't like going to bed full. And I find that many people feel similarly. So that definitely if, if data supports that, then that makes more sense that, you know, you sleep more comfortably when you've had several hours of digestive rest before you're actually getting into bed.
2: Yeah, I, I 100% agree with you. The the reflux is less. The, I, I, I I 100% personally agree with you. I like to eat at least like four or five hours before I sleep or or earlier. So I I enjoy eating early and stopping early. Um, I think that it's just the reality for most of our patients is that they want to have dinner with their families and and you make it work. Any you know eating from 12 to 6 is fine. You don't have to eat 8 to 2. You know.
0: And I think the thing that you're talking about that's important to keep in mind is that it doesn't have to be an all or nothing type thing. Like if we can't do intermittent fasting this particular one way with this many exact hours of an eating window that we should just throw the whole thing out. Um, and I think that that's a trap that we can get into when we really don't understand the nuances that you're talking about here. Like any steps in the direction of narrowing the feeding window um, and improving the quality of food can be really, really helpful.
2: Yeah, we also use we also use floating windows. So in in my practice, we use floating windows. I tell people make it work for your life. So if today, you know that like you don't need to eat dinner with your family, then start and you wake up and you're starving. Well, start early and end early, right? If tomorrow, you know, you have a social function that you're absolutely going to have to eat at. Well, you know, fast until the afternoon and then start late and finish late. So you don't have to stick to the same rigid schedule every day, just pick a four or six or eight hour window, whatever works for you, slowly titrate it down and just make it work for you within that day. You don't have to like stick to this you know, strict schedule. I, 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 so we practice a floating window.
0: That's cool, that's a term I w- hadn't heard before, I like that. I think our science and understanding has progressed a long way, and we we know that you can't exercise your way out of a crappy diet for weight or especially for health, but can you tell us how exercise and activity fits into your approach?
2: Yeah, so you have to understand we're getting a lot of uh, patients here. Uh, We have like a dichotomy of patients. but. We're getting a lot of 500 pound patients 600 pound patients 400 pound patients who have more than 100 pounds to lose and you know i was by myself was 350 pounds i had you know joint pain so really the focus in the beginning is about diet composition diet timing the relationship with food and really i tell patients you tell me when your body feels good and you're ready to exercise and it always happens it will always happen so They will tell me. They will tell me four months in, six months in, that they're ready for exercise, and I'll tell them to start slow, and we'll start, like, carving out some time. So take three days out of the week or four days out of the week and walk 20 or 30 minutes, and we'll build on that. Uh, We'll build on that time, so we'll move that into a high-intensity interval training, and then, you know, we'll add resistance training. So it depends on the patient. Other times I get people who, you know, were... You know, we're athletes in high school, and they just gained 50 pounds or 70 pounds, and they're still pretty active. In those people, there's no real need to excessively limit their exercise. Um, so so it really depends on the person in front of you. But uh, I don't, you know, if you have massive, if you have like stage 3 obesity and you have joint pain, I think the idea of telling somebody to go hit the treadmill or hit the gym is just ridiculous and in fact it's it's you're going to make them feel bad it's not going to feel good for them and probably it should be avoided until their body feels good at some point there's a tipping point where it needs to be encouraged and you know you can you don't have to send them to a gym or a treadmill you know have them do you know bodyweight squats or you know just when they get up in the morning do you know 20 bodyweight squats or get a bosu ball and you know, put it behind your back and do wall squats, you know, and do 10 or 20 or 30. And it could start with something as easy as that or a kettlebell and do, you know, five minutes of kettlebells at home, something simple to start that feels good. I think that's the most important thing.
1: And I think it's important, you know, as you mentioned, you know, meeting your, your patients where they are, and, you know, certainly having the ability to Provide whatever support it is that they need, and and I agree with you that some people may be a little more adventurous and are ready to go to a you know big box gym, but having the ability to exercise from home until they feel more confident and comfortable uh, certainly will speak volumes. Now, I would love for you to share two tips that you can give our listeners to help improve their health every day.
2: Sure. Uh, so so if this is the uninitiated, take. Any sugar any processed carb and cut it down to as close to zero as you can and folk and with that realize that you have to add something in its place okay if you're facing hunger if you're facing obesity and you are removing sugar and processed carbs realize that you have to put something back in its place otherwise you're gonna be starving okay so take healthy fats take proteins you know foods that you love chicken fish eggs steak Uh, Greek yogurt right and olives uh, uh, you know put put these avocados put these things in your diet you know and and don't be afraid to have a little bit more than usual especially if you're cutting down you know processed carbs and sugar I think that this is one of the easiest things somebody can do to improve the quality of their diet and the second thing is once you do that and once hunger is under control start narrowing the hours that you eat start at something comfortable like eight hours The average American eats 15 to 16 hours a day. It's insane that we're eating this much and this often. Start at like an eight hour window. You know, start at nine, end at five. See how it goes, see how it feels. Make sure you drink water, coffee, tea when you're outside of your window to kind of fill your stomach up and keep your mouth occupied so that you can not snack and not eat, right? And then slowly decrease that time. See how low you can go and see how it feels. And and, uh, of course, talk to your doctor before starting either one of these. So I think the general advice I have for people looking to get healthier is try to get your sugars and processed carbs as low as you possibly can, and then mess around with intermittent fasting. Start at, you know, eight hours, and then go drop an hour a week and see how your body feels.
0: I love that. Such great tips. And I'm sure people are going to want to know more about you and your programs. So can you tell us what your current programs are and how people can connect with you and find more about your work?
2: Yeah, so I'm uh, licensed in New York, New Jersey, Connecticut. Uh, I'm a physician, uh, board certified in internal medicine and obesity medicine. I do a lot of remote management, meaning... um, we basically send you out a if you join our program you could go to my website drtro.com spelled out d-o-c-t-o-r-t-r-o.com and um we will send you a scale we'll send you a blood pressure cuff we'll send you a cgm a continuous glucose monitor if indicated and we work with you weekly until uh and we try to get you to uh achieve your health goals and even after you finish our four-month program we monitor your you know demographic info and your and your sorry your uh vitals info for as long as you will allow us and we'll make sure that not only will you lose weight but we'll make sure you keep it off and if we see weight regain occur you know our staff will reach out to you we'll say mrs smith what's going on we saw that things are going in the wrong direction maybe you're stressed out maybe You know, there's some uh, sleep issues going on. Maybe there's some, um, you know, uh, uh, kind of acute stress that's going on. And we'll reach out to you and we'll try to keep you on track uh, even after you finish the program. So, you know, we have a four-month weight loss program. And uh, we help people come off their diabetes medications, blood pressure medications, cholesterol medications, all in a safe way. And, um, you know, I love it. I love what I do. I absolutely love what I do.
1: Well, that sounds absolutely amazing. And I will certainly be referring appropriate people to you. Thank you so much for carving a little bit of time out of your morning to join us. I know that the information you've shared today will be so pivotal and so helpful for so many of our listeners.
2: It was a pleasure to be here. Hopefully we can get both of you guys on the low carb MD podcast and uh, we can get you guys talking about uh, more about what you do. I think any, any, you know, Anybody talking about intermittent fasting and the psychology of obesity uh, is a message our listeners would love to hear.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us. You can find out more about Cynthia and her work at chtwellness.com. And you can find out more about Kelly and her work at everydaytherapist.com. In addition, if you have questions for us or topics you'd like us to address, please email us at everydaywellnesspodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Until next time, be well.
1: Just as you carefully choose the cut of meat or freshness of produce that you cook at home, you should carefully choose chemical-free cookware that provides a healthy and safe cooking experience. The materials in 360 cookware are safe, sustainable, and of the highest quality. Their cookware is 100% free from any toxic chemicals as the company produces quality stainless steel cookware and bakeware without added chemicals and all are manufactured in the United States. It's also the leading manufacturer that equips kitchens with cookware and bakeware that are free of all of the toxic chemicals and coatings, including PFAS, Teflon, and ceramic.